Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This Rosh Hashanah edition of the Pardes Parsha podcast is sponsored by Ricky and David Bernstein in memory of Ricky's parents, Beatrice and Murray Kirschblatt, survivors of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast. And this one's particularly special. First of all, I have a very special teacher and neighbor and colleague, Tovalea Nachmani. Welcome, Tovalea. Shalom, Tzvi. Very excited to have you. And in particular, because Rosh Hashanah, among maybe all the holidays that we encounter, for me, is the most difficult. And I'll tell you why. On the one hand, there's all this food preparation and family coming and even sometimes guests. And it has this very festive tone and air to it. On the other hand, you read the liturgy, and it's all about judgment. And even you read those lines in a tantok of who will live and who will die, and people are crying. And it's this very intense, for many people, difficult, scary day. Then you finish that whole service, and you come back for lunch, and then you move into this mode of putting honey on the challah, and you're, you know, probably in most cases gossiping about who the chazan was, and uh, they did a good job. <laughs> careful about that. Right? You should probably avoid that, but that does seem to be the minhag of the Jewish people. Oh, my goodness. But these mixed messages of the day... I personally find very difficult to manage, and I know you are here to help us sort of get a sense of how you understand what this holiday is about. We're going to try. We'll do it together in Chavruta. Okay, let's okay. hear Okay, so the question is, are you ready for Rosh Hashanah? Are you ready? No. Even, even the fact when we were taping this, I'm thinking, uh-oh, maybe this podcast is going to be what's going to push me because time is short. So no, not so, ready yet. Okay, so I have a menu ready, but I still have baking to do. I have some food in the freezer, and I have clothes, but I need shoes that match. Am I ready? You sound more ready than I am. <laughs> I can't help you with the shoes, though. I've never understood the whole idea of shoes matching. Like, I have one pair of dress shoes, and it always seems to work, I guess. But I don't for know. Men, Very lucky. Very lucky. Than for women. Okay, so what does it mean to get ready for Rosh Hashanah? How do we get ready for Rosh Hashanah? And we start from Rosh Chodesh Elul, which is the month before... Rosh Hashanah, Chodesh Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah is the first of Tishrei. Yom Kippur is the 10th of Tishrei. So all together, we have a 40-day period where we are moving in gradually and intensively into this period of these very, very intense, what we call high holidays. And I actually prefer to call them something else, high holidays. It's a hard word. for It's distant. It's, I don't know, ethereal. It's just that you can't relate to it. High holidays for me is, is not an easy word. I'd rather use what some of Jewish tradition says. These are Chodesh HaRachamim Vasilichot. Elul, this is the month of Rachamim, of compassion and of forgiveness. So how does that fit in with the theme of Rosh Hashanah, which is Dean, Judgment, and... And a lot of fear, a lot of very, you know, worry about what's coming. Right. Definitely. So I think I'll start with the topic of the fear and judgment. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. So first and foremost, when we look at the liturgy, I'm going to talk in general terms about nationally what we do, and then I'm going to talk specifically, you know, very personally about what we do personally. So nationally, what we're trying to do as a nation on Rosh Hashanah, the way I understand it, is to coronate God as king, is to accept upon ourselves God's kingship. And then we have to say, what does that mean? All the three monotheistic nations have a concept of kingship, kingship of God, of right, some kind of ultimate kingship. When we blow the shofar, that's an act of coronation. 
Right. I guess the question's even compounded by, like, why would God need us to declare him king, right? In other words, it would seem that he kind of knows he's king without Svi Hirschfeld, you know, saluting or Tovle Nachmani standing there during the parade, right? This whole question of what does it mean to coronate God as king? It's also part, I think, of this confusion of the day. So I think there's something very um, unusual and something that sort of only God could create, which is a situation where God is the ultimate ruler and has all the power in the world, and on the other hand, needs us. I'm going to say needs us because God created the world the way I understand it, the way that our tradition, I think, understands it, is that God created the world and then stepped back a bit and gives us the free will to do what we want in the world. God doesn't micromanage us. God's actually the best manager in that sense. Can you imagine a manager that like stands over you all the time and saying, oh, don't do that. Don't write it this way. Don't read it that way. Don't write. In other words, sometimes I could use that, by the way, but uh, I hear what you're <laughs> saying. Course. Overall, that could be a little challenging. Of course. So that I think that the kingship is something that it really does depend on us because what we're doing in this world is trying to help other people to, I think, recognize one God. And even more than that, for people to have a sense of not just awe and fear, but also love of God. Yom Hadin, one of the ways that the Hasidic master, Beit Yaakov, talks about deen, about judgment. He said, judgment is really about taking responsibility. If I judge you for something, it's because I want you to fulfill your potential. There's a difference in like saying, I judge you, and therefore I'm going to give you, you know, kind of a consequence or saying, you know, what a good manager would do. I'm judging your performance because I really want you to perform better because I need you to perform better. So I hear you sort of, in many ways, sort of softening this language that God is king, but it's not about a king who's going to control and micromanage everything we do or even needs to demonstrate his power and authority by forcing us to do all sorts of things we don't want to do. That's one piece, that God is king is telling us something else. And the second thing is that judgment you're sort of softening that also. It's not about God's sort of, okay, to the left you're going to die, to the right you're going to live, but rather this sense of almost a reflection or a willingness to own that I have been doing a lot of things this past year, and it's time for me and maybe all of us collectively to look at what we've been doing with the mindset of being open to the flaws and difficulties and not just the positive outcomes. Yes, absolutely. I think that's why we have our annual review. In most serious workplaces, we have at least an annual, if not more than that, review where we have to sit down and face what we've done well all of our successes, and also the things that we need to be doing better. And I think that, for me at least, is what Rosh Hashanah is really about. That's the kind of judgment, at least, that is helpful for me to think about, as opposed to just, you know, standing in line and waiting for the lightning bolt to strike. So you don't enter this holiday or this season with fear. It doesn't evoke fear for you, if I understand you correctly. It doesn't evoke fear, but it does evoke a sense of really wanting to collect myself and you know, do what we call cheshbon nefesh, to think through, you know, my actions and my behaviors and what I'm doing well and what I could be doing better. I mean, I try to do that every day to some extent or another. But yes, Rosh Hashanah is the intensive marathon. It's the once a year where we take it sort of to its nth degree and we really stand there. Before I want to go to the individual, I want to just say one more thing about the community. I think as a community, what it means to accept the kingship of God, malchut shamaim, is really showing how much we love God. It's interesting that the Jewish nation, with all of the tragedies and difficulties that we've experienced has never given up on God, right? The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jewish people were exiled. And even though individually for many people, of course, I'm not even going to mention the Holocaust except for mentioning it, but for many individuals, we would never judge anyone for, you know, falling out of a relationship with God. But as a Jewish people, we've never given up on God. 
And there's something about that love of God that for all the mitzvot that we have, we look to do them behidur. We look to do them actually like we read the Sefer Torah, right, in synagogue. You know, we don't just like pull it off the shelf and read it out of a random drawer. It's dressed in some beautiful velvet cover. It has a crown on it. We kiss it. We don't just read it, right? We stand up for it. We really go above and beyond. We build a sukkah. So what do we do when we build a sukkah? We decorate it and we sing in it. In other words, on Shabbat, we don't just not do what we're supposed to not do, but we are supposed to really be celebrating and going, you know, sort of above and beyond. I think that's how I look at the kingship of God is really looking at so much of what God has given us and gives us every moment and then saying, how do I express that love and appreciation and gratitude in return? You know, it's interesting because I feel like in a very interesting way, you're sort of neutralizing the whole Avinu Malkenu separation, right? I think for myself included, I've always thought of it as when God is my father, that's the loving, caring God, and that's the God that I show love back to. And when God is king, then I'm the Eved, I'm the servant. And that does for me evoke a sense of fear of a king that's going to demand and expect and hold me to a difficult, challenging standard. And I hear you sort of merging those two in an interesting way. I'm wondering if the idea of, in the way I'm thinking of God as king, or you as a, you know, an Eved, does that play a role for you in this idea of accepting God as king? Is there any room for this sense of fear? I don't live with fear. I live with awe. In Hebrew, it's the same word, yirah. You know, I think sometimes fear can be helpful. I think children have a little bit of fear of consequences. A little bit of fear of consequence is really helpful for us. If I'm not going to speed on the highway because I don't want to get a ticket because I'm afraid of that consequence. So that's healthy. I think there's plenty of things that for us, if you know, I eat well or exercise because I'm afraid of the consequences, I think there's some of that which can be very helpful. But it makes me think of in the parashah, it says that we will receive all kinds of uh, terrible consequences. That we receive negative consequences, not for not serving God, but for not serving God with joy, with the whole heart. So I think that the love has a much greater, to have that awe that's sort of wrapped in love, to me, is a much more powerful image. So the dominant element, though, you're saying is, if I understand, we have to move past this almost childlike, you know, irrational fear of God as judge and really use this time of year to build a relationship that is built on love and trust and care. I think so. In fact, we do that not just on Rosh Hashanah, we do it every time we say the Shema. The blessing before the Shema ends with the word Ahava. God chose the Jewish people, Be'ahava. And then we say Shema Yisrael, which is accepting the kingship of God. And the first word after that prayer is Ve'ahavta, and you should love the Lord your God. So there is also in the Torah a mitzvah to fear That's right. So the question is, how are you going to translate that? I just really step away from the word fear, unless I'm about to like take myself down a rabbit hole and do something really bad, then maybe the fear is a helpful way to think it's about it. It's very Maimonidean, right? Rambam had a real hierarchy, right? That fear of God was for those who did not achieve the level of love of God, but that love of God is ultimately what we're headed to. And you're saying Rosh Hashanah is really ultimately getting to that place of love of God and feeling God's love of us, which requires us, I think, to do a fair amount of work of navigating that language of din, of judgment, and trying not to let that overwhelm us 
with this fearful sense, but move through that, you're saying, to a place of uh, loving relationship. I think so. That's helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for some other people as well. So I have a couple questions for you. First, what does shofar have to do with all this? I feel like you've helped us sort of organize our mental, emotional relationship with the day, but then shofar comes along. You said it's a coronation, but again, it's not for you a coronation of fear. It's a coronation of love. So again, I'm saying it's not not about fear. Sometimes fear can be a very useful emotion and a useful way to translate yira'ah, and sometimes it isn't. I think that shofar is the first mitzvah of the Jewish year. And what is the mitzvah of shofar? It's not blowing the shofar. It's lishmoa kol shofar to listen to the shofar. It's actually a debate among the Rishonim, Nahum. but we're going to stick That's with you fine, because that is how we hold in terms of the bracha. Correct, so exactly, exactly. So listening to the shofar, and I think it's happened more the more I've matured, the shofar makes me cry usually. You know, just for a few minutes a year, what our tradition is requiring of us is to just be quiet. Just to shh, just be quiet. And listen to the kol shofar, the voice of the shofar, the sound of the shofar, and what it does is it shakes up something inside. Sometimes it makes me feel so overwhelmed with the sense of, I'm so grateful to be alive, grateful to have my family, grateful to be standing in this community right now, grateful to be living with freedom, grateful to be Jewish. Like there's so many things sometimes with the shofar, just that listening to that raw sound of the shofar, which is like the raw sound of our neshama, our soul, that doesn't speak in words, but it speaks in some other language. So it touches you. That's what I hear you're saying. Yeah, it definitely touches me. You know, building on what you said, there's a Hasidic interpretation. That, you know, it builds on Shofar breaking down the walls of Jericho. And the idea that the walls between us and God are basically this one giant illusion. And it's Nitivot Shalom, I think, who comments. And basically the Shofar is there to break down the imaginary walls. Usually you hear judgment, you want to run away. If I tell you, oh, here's this person I'd like to introduce you to, they're going to be very judgmental with you. You will probably pack up your stuff and run in the opposite direction. And I think that the tradition is telling us that we understand that that's going to be your reaction, but there is a deeper place to get to where you're not running away, but you're actually running towards or connecting with, which is very powerful. That's beautiful. So I want to say two things about that. One, if I know that someone's judging me because they love me or because they care about me, then I'm not going to pack up my stuff and run away. If I know I'm going to have an annual review at work or if I know that, you know, my husband's going to sit down and say, can we talk about something? Something that's really been, you know, difficult for me and I do it like I really love you and I just want to do it because I want us to have the best relationship possible. So I'm not going to pack up and run away. And I think, you know, the love is step number one. And that's where judgment has to come from. If we believe that God loves us, then I think we can handle the judgment. Tovale is witnessing me smile because I'm thinking to myself, nope, anybody says they're going to judge me, doesn't matter how much love is there. When my wife says we have to have a conversation, no matter how much love is there, my first thought is, oh, please, let the phone ring. Let something happen that this conversation does not need to take place, which proves to our listeners what they already know, that my level of maturity really needs to grow, and maybe this is a good time of year for that. So help us understand how you get yourself and how you imagine us moving into this day. Okay, great. So take one step back to the shofar to say how the shofar moves me. If I have my eyes open and I'm looking around at what other people are wearing or if I'm listening for, is that a good shofar blower or a bad shofar blower? Is he getting the sound out or is he, you know, it's not going to move me. And so before the shofar is blown, besides all kinds of like songs, piyutim, that we sing in order to get ourselves ready for that in a communal prayer setting, I take a few deep breaths I close my eyes, and I stay with my eyes closed all through the shofar blowing. 
And I really try to block out everything that's around me and just let it sort of, you know, vibrate within my heart and within my soul. So that's just a practical way. Let it help move me. Now, let's talk practically from, you know, how do we like prepare ourselves for Rosh Hashanah and how do we get ourselves right to that place? I want to share with you, Tzvi, and with our listeners, one of my favorite pieces of Torah, which is from Rav Cook's book, Orot Chuva, The Lights of Chuva. For Rav Cook, everything was about light. Everything was optimistic and about looking to the future with love. And he writes about tshuva. He says there's three different types of tshuva. And he's really asking the question is like, what gets us there? What motivates us to do tshuva? Who wants to change? That's hard. It's hard. Yeah, I certainly don't. I'm thinking even the word (laughs) makes me, you know, I guess we can put that up with judgment. When someone says, hey, I really need you to change. Once again, my first thought is, uh uh-oh. But yes, I hear you. At the same time, of course, we all do have this ideal sense of who we are and often are frustrated and coming back to the other theme, fearful of how we're going to get there. Are we ever going to get there? That's right. So, and sometimes we have an ideal sense, but we don't know who we can be. We don't even recognize our full potential. And I think that God recognizes our full potential. And right, Rosh Hashanah is inviting us to say, maybe you can see yourself as having a greater potential than you even think you have. You know, I never believed 10 years ago that I would have accomplished some of the things that I've accomplished today. You know, all of our listeners will be able to say the same thing about a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So I think that we can't even really imagine who we can become. And I think that's some of what Rosh Hashanah is inviting us to do. So if you look at Rav Cook when he asked the question, what puts the fire under them to actually really want to even change? And he says there's actually three different, he divides it into three, which are four. We'll talk about them. He said, one, there's a natural, he calls it tshuva tiv'it. So the natural tshuva, what are the things that make us want to change? These are things that I think every person has experienced. One is tshuva tivit gufanit, physical, natural change. And those are the natural consequences of if I eat too much, the next day I'm going to say, oh, that didn't feel right, right? I'm going to try to not eat so much today. Or if I eat something which is, you know, not good for me, if I'm not exercising and so I'm feeling sluggish, or it's just the bodily feeling of something isn't right. Something just doesn't feel right, or I have some medical issue and it's right, and there's something I can do to alleviate my symptoms. He said that's a kind of chuva that everybody knows how to do. That's why he calls it natural. It's just built into our biological system. Kind of like our survival instinct, just acting out, saying, hey, you want to live longer. If you continue in this path, you won't. Right. I don't know if it's about living longer as much as about living better, because who knows how long we're going to live. The question is how we live in our here and now. For me, that's what it's more about. So that's the tshuva tivit gufani, the bodily tshuva. And then he says that in the natural tshuva, in that same category, we have tshuva tivit nafshit. We have a natural sense of consequence when we do something which emotionally is not good for us or not good for our relationship with somebody. He writes, if you have a healthy sense of your relationships with other people, if I offend somebody, and I see it in their face, or even if I don't see it in their face, I'm probably going to go home and think about it. I'm going to go home and it's going to cause me a sense of restlessness or a sense of sadness or a sense of something else. If I've done something emotionally either to someone else or to myself, if I ignore somebody, they're going to feel it, right? That's acting with passive aggression is what it's called. Even if I don't offend somebody, but I don't pay attention to them, if I don't listen to them. So if we're in an emotionally healthy place for the most part, causing emotional harm or hurt to others will bother us. We're not going to be insensitive to that. We're going to want to fix that or change it. It's going to bother us. And to ourselves. There are things emotionally that we can hurt ourselves. 
examples of that. If I, you know, am giving too much or doing too much for other people and I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm not getting enough, I mean, that's bodily, but let's say, you know, I'm not taking care of my own needs or my own when I'm not spending myself quality time or quiet time or exciting time, whatever it is that I need, vacation days or whatever it is that makes my heart or my nephesh or my soul feel like I'm taking care of myself, they're going to be natural consequences for that. So that's easy. That's the first uh, first two, first two, yeah. It's actually the first one. Well, because natural, natural, natural is the category. Is the first one, right? So bodily and emotional. The second one's a little bit more challenging. He said the second one is called faith-based chuva, chuva emunit. So what makes a person actually want to change? He says that faith-based chuva can be one of two things. Either it can be fear, as he said before, of a consequence, because the Torah does give us consequences. It says if you do X, why will happen in many cases. And so when I'm reading those in the Torah or listening to the Torah being read on Shabbat, like I stop a warning, in my tracks. A warning sign goes exactly. off. Exactly. There's a little bit of a warning sign, a red light, and it makes me pay attention. So that Tshuva Munit can be a fear of consequence, or it can be, and I'm going to use this word again, awe. It can be an awe of the Torah laws, that the wisdom in the Torah, which is not necessarily intuitive, the wisdom in the Torah, which is, wow, like I wouldn't have even known that if I hadn't been learning Torah. And I'll give you one example, or maybe two examples, right? In the Torah, we're told that we should give tzedakah, which we always be supporting the poor. And we'll always have poor in our community, and we always need to be looking around. And, you know, and there are many, many, many laws of how we are supposed to support the poor. So that might not be intuitive. I work hard. I get my paycheck at the end of the month, and I deserve it. And yeah, I let that do... guy pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Exactly. Why do I have to, you know, help out? That's right. So intuitively, but when I see, and at times when I've needed help from other people, then I'm really grateful that that exists. And when I see that I'm able to help someone else, right, there's wisdom in the Torah that I might not intuit if I hadn't learned that law in the Torah. Or I might be resisting it. Since it's uncomfortable or unpleasant, it's a wisdom that I would prefer to put aside and talk myself out of. And here the Torah comes along and says, no, no, this is actually the better way to live. And I'm forced to engage that or reconcile myself to that and then improve my behavior. Right. And that's why the tshuva tiv'it, the natural tshuva, which is emotional, that's why that's not enough. That's why tshuva emunit can be a higher level because I have this mangenon aganav defense mechanism within me, which says, ah, I'm okay. It's the other person who's the problem. I frequently say that. <laughs> so do I. So there's another example that I really want to share, which is the mitzvah that we learn from a very esoteric section of the Torah called Egla Arufa. But out of that, we learn a mitzvah to escort our guests when they leave our home. So to invite guests in, I learned that from Abraham. And that might even be intuitive to invite people around. Maybe it's not, maybe it is. But we learn achnasat tochim, inviting guests in. But what happens when your guest gets up and wants to leave? Sometimes I'm like ready for my guests to leave. I'm like, okay, bye. That's my intuition. But really, the Torah is saying that what we need to do is to walk that person not just to the door, but out the door and partially on their way, because what that gives to a person is a sense of being seen, of being valued, of not just being sort of swept out, you know, once we finished our mitzvah with them. And it's very interesting. I just did it just the other night. Um, my husband was leaving in the evening and, you know, I said, okay, bye. And I said, no, I'm not going to say, okay, bye. I'm going to actually walk out the door with him. And the craziest thing happened. We walked out the door and he went to his car. I walked with him to the car. I've never done that before. I just was doing it because of this mitzvah that I was just learning in the Torah portion. I walked with him to the car and he went to start his car and his car wouldn't start. His battery was dead. And it was just a crazy 
moment of like, I was so glad I was there to support him. And then I went to get my car. He didn't have to come back and call me in. And it was just, it was like, I said, oh yeah, like that's just- Made sense to you in that moment. It made sense to me because it made him feel that he was of such value to me that I was already right there for him. And then I could run and, you know, get the things that we needed from home, jumper cables and all that. Okay. So that's tshuva emunit. And the third kind of tshuvas, Rav Cook writes, is a tshuva sikhlit. It's the intellectual tshuva. What's intellectual tshuva? He said, intellectual tshuva is the clarity that we gain from having learned these examples in the Torah that are not intuitive and from experiencing the tshuva of making really horrible mistakes, right, that we do to our bodies or to our friends or to ourselves and having made the correction and having done the tshuva. And then that tshuva makes so much sense to me that I don't want to do that anymore. Meaning if someone says to me like, Let's speak Lashon Allah about, you know, the guy who was blowing the shofar today. Like, my intuition would be saying, no, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? Of course you can do that. You have free will. No, I actually really can't because I once was burned so badly by Lashon Allah that now, or I once burned somebody else so badly that now, and then I did tshuva for that. And so because of my mistakes, I was able to actually learn something, internalize something. Sikhrit doesn't just mean I know it. It means I like really know it. I really internalize it. And I've internalized it through making terrible mistakes and having to correct myself. So it's really, in a way, sikhlit, not intellectual as much as mindful. It's like this sense of, I would say, a state of mind that goes beyond a particular behavior or a particular reaction or a particular thing to fix, but a sort of state of mind about how I want to be in this world as opposed to how I have been in this world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what you're suggesting here is, if I understand correctly, based on Ruff Cook, if I'm following your steps, that first be aware of the things in your life that you know intuitively need fixing or changing because you're not feeling well, because you know in your body, quite literally, that you're not in the place you need to be. And then take another step and ask yourself, okay, what are the wisdom that's out there that's trying to teach me ways to be that might not be something I understand intuitively, but I trust the source of wisdom and I want to fix those behaviors as well. And then ultimately getting into a totally different mindset, this like awareness that all of these other chuvas, these repairs are teaching me that there's sort of an overall sense of improvement that I need to make that has to express itself in my life, in all various ways of my life. Excellent. I would just say that becomes a part of who I am. The sikhlit is something that becomes such a deep part of who I am that I can't really go back and act otherwise. So it's real change. It's real change. I'm not the person who I was before because the person I was before could do X and the person I am now, it's unthinkable to do X. Exactly. So if I look back five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, some of the things that I did, oh, I'm not even going to give any examples, but some things that I've done in my life, and then I look today and say, wait a minute, I would never do those things today. Never. It shows how much we really have changed and can change and don't need to be afraid of change. Because one of the things Rob Cook says about tshuva is that if we're looking for happiness in life, that's where to find it. So if I understand you correctly, you get ready towards Rosh Hashanah or this whole period, it's like a combination of being very reflective about where you are and really trying to be in touch with where you are in a physical way, where you are in an emotional way with yourself and with others, and then ultimately figuring out that aspirational mindset of where you really feel yourself becoming a different person or a better person. 
and you recommend starting that process actually before the holiday begins and not to cram it all in between Friday night dinner and you know lunch the next day. So here's a secret. It's happening all the time. It's not that we have to have it completed before Rosh Hashanah. And the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur are called Aseret Yemei Tshuva. So sometimes the shofar actually can wake us up to begin that process. It's not that we have to have it completed before Rosh Hashanah. One personal practice that I have to try to hold on to this. Do you remember from last Rosh Hashanah what you took upon yourself to change? If there was some, I'm sure there was some. Oh, there's a whole list. My okay. problem is that that list unfortunately stays consistent year to year. The things I needed to work on 10 years ago are unfortunately the things I still need to work on now, which I find sometimes very demoralizing. So I want to say two things about that. One is we're moving up in a spiral. We don't move up vertically. We don't just suddenly, you know, like take off our previous facade or like take out our neshama and like, you know, bleach it up. It doesn't happen that way. We work in a spiral and we become more, right? Our evolution is a gradual evolution. We're always growing. So even today, if I say, you know, I just want to make sure that my husband feels that he is the most important, respected, and loved person on this earth, I said the same thing five years ago, 10 years ago, and 20 years ago, and 40 years ago when we got married, and I'm still working on it. But that's okay, because every time I do that a little bit better, then our relationship is a little better. And when I fall back and stop doing that or, you know, make mistakes, then there's room for improvement. But I don't fall all the way back to, you know, to the, the first time. The graph is looking good. The graph is looking definitely much better. And I will tell you, he was chazan at Slicho today and did a very good job. He's so you amazing. should feel very proud of him. He's just amazing. Last but not least, the Sfat Emet has a teaching that I learned many, many years ago from my beloved teacher, Batya Hefter. The Sfat Emet says, a person only remembers things for 30 days. So, of course, we can remember lots of things for more than that. But when he says remembers, I think he's saying remember when we have goals, aspirations, things we want to change, you know, big ideas, idealized versions of ourselves. He's like, we don't remember after 30 days. And so his Torah teaching, which I've actually turned into a Rosh Chodesh practice, is to actually go through this process every Rosh Chodesh and ask myself every beginning of a new Hebrew month, what do I need to work on this month? What more do I want to do? And sometimes what more is just the same thing I was working on last month and the month before, and sometimes it's really just a continuation of the same thing. And sometimes I have a feeling of, no, I actually want to do something else or do something additional. So I think when our Jewish tradition says we need to be a light unto the nations, unto the world, I think it's because the more we are working on ourselves the more we can hope to have a positive influence on other people. And that's coming from a place of accepting God's kingship over us, God's rulership from a place of love. Because I know if God loves me and God's, you know, bringing this judgment because God wants us to be the absolute best people we can, I want to be in that process. Wow, you tie it all together very nicely. Normally I get to do that. So I'm going to reflect back with you a couple of things that I heard that I think are very, very helpful. First of all, don't let the anxiety and fear of the day, this sense of, uh-oh, and am I in big trouble? Don't let that be your beginning. And also don't let the apples and honey be your end. Well, <laughs> right, right. In other words, but it's a time to do serious spiritual work, not because you're afraid that God is going to, God forbid, hurt you as a result of the negative judgment, so to speak, but out of this belief that because God is king, because God created you, God actually believes in you and cares about you and is judging you from a place of wanting you to understand where you are missing the mark or where you're not fulfilling your total potential and to move in that direction. You know, it occurs to me in a certain way, the fearful model is almost safer, 
right? It's a reason, I think, that the idea that God loves you can also be a scary idea in the sense of if God really does believe in me and God does see all this potential in me, the fear that I'm going to fail is much greater, right? In other words, the judgment that we're most afraid of are from the people we love and care about the most because their judgment matters the most. And I think for a lot of us to really connect the idea that God believes in me and God sees potential in me and God thinks I can get there can both be very affirming, but it could also be very scary. Can I get there? Will I get there? Am I going to disappoint? Am I going to reach where I want to reach? So I think there's a certain link there on the dynamic that, at least myself, I know I have to overcome. It's safer for me to believe I can't do it because then the pressure is off. I think that the scariest thing for me is if I actually start to believe I can do it because then the work really has to begin, right? In other words, if God really does love me and I really am worthwhile, well, what does that mean about how I really need to live and how much I have to really pay attention? So I feel like that's like really implicit in the things that you are saying that it's about responsibility. It's not about fear, but it's about taking responsibility for what God loving us really might mean. And I think the other big takeaway, which I think is important, of course, is this isn't something you do once a year that it may come to the foreground during this time of year, but this type of spiritual work is ongoing, right? Rev Cook's Arota Chuva, just like the Rambam's Laws of Chuva, it was not written for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, per se. It's work that we have to be doing. Neither was Rav Soloveitchik's uh, works. All of it, right? Chuva, the Meiris, Chibura, Chuva, right? It's Chuva is something we have to be engaged in all the time. It's not that we can just ignore everything and then walk in on the first of Tishrei and think it's all going to happen on its own. We have tools, we have help, but you're saying we got to really be in a kind way, maybe even a very gentle way, looking at ourselves and being aware of these processes all the time. How did I do it? I learned the lesson You learned the lesson. Good job. I'll just say that listening to that sound of the shofar is like listening to our soul. And really, we just do it in an intensive way once a year for, you know, maybe a total of five minutes, all of those shofar blasts. But really, that's just reminding us what we need to be doing all the time, just to take a few moments at any given moment, even when we've done something that we are not proud of or when we're just laying in bed at night and just to say, okay, how did I do today? And how am I showing myself with love that I can actually maybe do better? And maybe how can I look back on my day and say, you were great. You did really well. And not to be overly judgmental of myself. Okay. Well, it's a lot of very helpful advice, everyone. Tovalea, thank you so much for agreeing to do this and sharing your wisdom with us. A lot of challenge in there. And you did it very kindly, very gently, but you definitely presented us with some very, very healthy challenges of how to engage this day and this time period in the Jewish calendar and how it can get us through, really help us grow the rest of the year as well. Thank so you. thank you. You're a great Haruta. Thank oh, you so much. Oh, I appreciate it. Hopefully a good student sometimes. So everyone, on behalf of Tovlea, myself, the Pardes Institute, the entire Jewish people, we want to wish you the happiest and healthiest, most meaningful new year you could possibly have for you and your families. And we look forward to joining you more in the future. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.